My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Today we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 11. So if you copy the scriptures, you can turn your way there, you can tap your way there if you've got a digital device. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'll put those verses on the screen. Don't panic, but we'd love to give you a copy in a modern English translation. So what you just saw was a representation of our Thanksgiving giveaway. We, we deliver, we produce and delivered over 350 meals to go out all across the valley to try and care for people. And uh, we've done that for years and years now. But this past year, uh, I don't know, on Thursday, it was extremely exciting. It was very cool to be a part of, to just sort of walk into it and have the smell and the excitement and the laughter, the sounds. You know, you've got that bubbling turkeys. You saw all those frying pots uh, to hear the snapping of all the safety gloves as everybody's making sure they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing and, and the laughter. I mean, the joy that you're getting from person to person is everybody's just having a fun time doing this fun thing. And we were really clear about why we're doing it. We didn't do that because we're good people. We're not good people. We did that because we are responding to something that God has done to us. So we, we talk about Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving comes from a historical you know, time. There was a thing that happened, and then we sprouted Thanksgiving. But the posture of being thankful is on every page of Scripture. It's something that is supposed to be a response. You, you feel thankful because God has done something, and then you respond in thankfulness to this God that's done something for you. I mean, we, we take these meals out and it's this, I mean, it's a tremendous amount of effort and it takes people knowing what they're doing to do it. But, but even that effort and even that expertise is just such a small response to such an incredible grace that we've received from God. We should, if we could actually see what God's done for us, live in this overflow, this constant state of thankfulness. So let me ask you, you just went through Thanksgiving, how'd it go? Were you thankful? Did you check that box? I mean, did you do the like thankful thing before you actually ate and everybody has to go around and say, you know, we didn't do it like right before Thanksgiving meal, but we did it a couple times kind of leading up to Thanksgiving as my little group of five and you know, we would go around, all right, say something you're thankful for. And I didn't make them do like a hierarchy, what you're most thankful for and work your way down. We just let it be a total grab bag. But of course, you know, I want to be on the first round of things they're thankful for. Um, didn't, didn't make the first round. I would get second or third round. The dog was always first round, which was frustrating. But you try to train yourself to be thankful. We have these holidays that enshroud the concept. And, and yet, not easy. The Bible's talking about it all the time, and yet, I don't know how often we do the woe moments of amazement, of, of thankfulness for what God does for us. It says all over Scripture that we should be thankful, and yet, I don't know. A counselor named David Pallison, a wise counselor for decades, a biblical counselor, he's now passed, but, but he tried to put this into, into words. He says, why wouldn't I say thank you? Perhaps I don't feel thankful. I feel entitled. I don't recognize who's giving me every good thing. I don't want or need help or depend on anyone. I want to take all the credit for myself. Thank you very much and no thanks to you. But when I awaken to who gives me good gifts, I'm grateful. 
That seems a little bit cynical, but it's founded on the decades of his experience as a biblical counselor. This is a guy that's looked into the human heart over and over again and seen that thankfulness as a practice isn't just something we want to increase in our life as though it's just, you know, a good tip. Thankfulness is actually an indicator of your perspective on yourself and the world around you. Thankfulness is crucial. It says in 1 Thessalonians, I had a whole different verse I was going to use to illustrate thankfulness from Scripture. I switched to 1 Thessalonians 5 because it was the bridge memory verse for today. Memory verse uh, makes it sound like he just makes him do one verse. Mr. Hobbs is cracking a whip. They're, they're memorizing pages of Scripture. I, I did a selection of the bridge verse, but it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's supposed to be a big deal. It's supposed to be a constant thing. It's not because it actually taps into something much deeper. You ever try to get rid of a tree, even a little one? You have to do a lot of digging and a lot of cutting because it's not just taking it off at ground level. You've got to get that stump out of there. And when you actually start trying to get a stump out, even a small one, you recognize these roots, either the tap root or these different roots that go out that are thick, that are deep set. They don't come out without a fight. Our lack of thankfulness, I think, is actually showing us about a, a root that goes pretty deep. I'm not saying that based on myself or even David Pallison. I'm saying that based on what Christ teaches as we continue on in Matthew 11. So, Jesus has sent the disciples. We're talking about this light burden. Next week, we actually get to sort of the title verse about a burden being light. So come back for that. But we're talking about him sending the disciples out to go and speak the gospel. We're talking about, in this chapter, the response of John the Baptist, whom you would think is just locked down, solid. He's a great guy. He's got all this figured out. He's going to be happy and moving until, you know, the Lord takes him home. But in fact, he expresses what is real. As Scripture shows us what is real about the human heart. And he, he responds with some depression for the slowness with which the world around him is changing. He has preached repentance. We have seen the Christ. And where is the response? And they, Jesus continues. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. We talked about this last week. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. In the Jesus-pointing contest, John the Baptist won over all the Old Testament because he was able to say, Jesus, like that, that's Jesus. He was able to physically point to Jesus. And yet all of us are actually greater in the Jesus-pointing contest because instead of just pointing to the person of Jesus, we can point to the work of Jesus as expressed through a person. He continues, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, what that verse is saying is the kingdom of heaven, as John the Baptist inaugurates it, the kingdom of heaven is moving forward. John the Baptist is, is making way straight for Jesus, Advent, Jesus coming, bringing this gospel. And as that happens, the gospel is moving forward, the kingdom of heaven, and it says has suffered violence. Now, the verb that's there is a verb that, that can go either way. It's, we have the word. It's the word that Matthew wrote, but it's, it's, it can be interpreted two different ways. It can mean either that the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence or that the kingdom of heaven has advanced forcefully. It's either the one being or the one doing. But either way, the kingdom of heaven is moving forward and the violent are taking it by force. As the kingdom of heaven moved forward, violent people are reacting violently to it. 
Now, the immediate context is, of course, John the Baptist, as Herod has put him in jail and is about to take off his head. But Jesus is making it clear. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, if you're willing to accept it, he's Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is bringing together lots of concepts, helping us to see something from the Old Testament about how he cares for his depressed prophets. (laughs) Whether it's John the Baptist who started to doubt whether Jesus might not be the Christ, or Elijah in the Old Testament, this great prophet who experienced by, by God's grace this great victory over all the prophets of Baal and all the false prophets are killed and all the people of Israel are going to repent and come back and the famine's over. And then as he's running, trying to get away from the rain, he gets word from the queen that she's going to have his head on a platter. It was all for naught. The repentance didn't come. The kingdom didn't come as Elijah thought it should, as he thought it would. And yet God knew exactly how to care for Elijah. He goes to sleep under a broom tree, totally depressed. God feeds him. He goes back to sleep. God feeds him again as an angel. Bring him food and water. And then on the strength of that food, go for a 40-day fast and walk up to a mountain where God speaks to Elijah before just taking him straight up to heaven. God knows how to handle caring for his depressed prophets. See more last week. But Jesus says there's actually people with a worse problem than John in jail. There's actually a bigger thing we need to focus on than people like Elijah that are getting really depressed about the slowness with which they see the kingdom moving. Now, God responds to Elijah, I've got 7,000 that haven't bent the knee. And Jesus is responding to John, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm Jesus. I know you're John the Baptist, but I got, I got this. And he quotes Elijah, uh, Isaiah to him to show him that he is the Christ, he is the anointed, and he is bringing about the kingdom as God's called him to do, both in grace and in truth. But we have a worse problem than John in jail or Paul in prison. Jesus turns from addressing the subject of John to addressing the subject of this generation. He says in verse 16, but to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For for John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say, he's got a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking. And they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. What's he saying? John's about to go to, he's in jail. He's about to have his head taken off. Christ is headed for a cross. But this generation has rejected the Lord. They've rejected. They've rejected in, in Jesus' teaching here in two different directions. And that's part of the point. They're trying to say that the same thing is both to one and to the other. John came and he came in severity. He came preaching repentance and living a lifestyle modeling repentance. He's out living in the dust with camel's hair. He's, he's taken off his fine clothing. He's, he is living a fasting lifestyle calling the people of Israel to repentance. He's bringing about mourning, news that's sad, and the people don't respond. Then you have Jesus, and Jesus is coming with grace, and he's coming with healing, and he's coming multiplying and turning water into wine, multiplying bread, bringing about the day of the Lord, but a day of the Lord that is this, 
you have the day of the Lord in judgment, which John the Baptist is representing, but you also have the day of the Lord in restoration, where the years that the locusts have eaten regrow, where the city that is, is, has been deserted, been destroyed, has its walls rebuilt. Jesus is coming, and He is unmaking the curse. And what do they say to Jesus? They say that He is a drunkard and a glutton. What? Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's trying to say, what is this faith that is too severe and too indulgent at the same time? Who is this Christ that is way too severe and way too indulgent at the same time for the same reason? He's trying to say you can't have it both ways. I think we've all heard the critique is that Christianity is just too severe. This is, a, this is a faith that actually believes in hell. How can it be true? How can there be a good God that would actually consign people to that kind of judgment? This Christianity is much, much too severe. And to that, I respond with um, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, case A should be, you know, G, exhibit A should be Jesus. And Jesus would put himself forward as a response to that statement. You say Christianity is too severe. Well, okay, look at Christ. I think we all do imagine Christianity to be a, um, a weird sort of addition to fun times. What do you imagine to be like the height of fun? I mean, for me, I, I have a lot of different stuff. I mean, obviously, your heart's complicated or whatever. But, but that I see sometimes the ads for liquor, and it looks really fun. Not just like drink or don't drink. I'm not making a case. I'm just saying like you, sometimes when you see ads for specific liquors or for hotels, there's some, a whole range of hotel ads right now where they show you like all the fun stuff you can be doing in these fun cities and staying at a hotel while you're there. And when you watch the sort of like wild, fun dancing and stuff that's happening, it looks very attractive. But let me ask the question, does Christianity fit into that joy, into that fun? If you're watching that ad, would it be weird if in the background, like among the people, was their pastor? Or would that seem out of place? Would it seem out of place for somebody's mom to be like, you know, there with them, hanging out at the speakeasy or, you know, whatever's happening in these liquor ads? It seems kind of weird. It seems like you don't really want those two things together. Like you kind of need the darkness over here and the light over here. And Christianity is is way too severe to allow for the kind of joy and the fun that we're all hoping for. Well, to that, again, I respond, Jesus, let's take the test case of Thanksgiving. How was Thanksgiving really in your heart? I mean, I hope it was great, but I'm, I'm going to guess that it had um, some darkness around it, or maybe right in the middle of it. You know, it's a, it's a holiday that's supposed to be about eating, about celebration through food. It's all about smoking, a massive amount of meat and eating it. And yet, as you go through that process, are you not experiencing some, you know, regrets? Your belt gets tight. You're going to have to go back a loop. You know, your belt gets tight. You start experiencing the Black Friday stuff. Your budget gets busted. You're just immediately spending all of this money, and you're watching it all go out, and you're thinking to yourself, this isn't good. This holiday is actually a bad idea. I know I can't veto it, but how can we re reduce it? This is not what I wanted. This excess is actually a bad thing. You, you maybe experience some absence of love in your life over Thanksgiving. 
where all those that have experienced loss, meaning that some people that were there in the past aren't there this year, and I get that. But there's also um, a different kind of, of loss of love, where maybe you look around, you have a holiday, you look around and you kind of assess your relationships. You've got your family or whoever you're going to be celebrating with, your friends giving or whatever, and you look at these people and do you say to yourself, like, my goodness, my life is full of love? Or is there a part of you that looks around at these people and goes, eh. <laughs> I, I, I actually would prefer things be better, things be different, things be other. A better marriage, a, a, a different group of people as my family, a, a different group of um, friends. Maybe instead of the excess or the absence, there's just this feeling of the ending. Um, this is a worrywart kind of a thing, but I've, I've, I don't know if you do this. When I have a good thing that's coming, I'll enjoy the first 20% of it. And then I think about the fact that it's almost over. Okay, but Friday's going to go fast, and Saturday's going to be a bunch of chores, and then it's Sunday, and we're back. You know, like this Thanksgiving thing, it's already almost over, and I'm just I'm nervous about what's to come rather than enjoying the moment of it. And, and whether you do that or not, it does end. And then you got to go back to life. Like, what are the depression rates that happen after New Year's? Celebrations are done, but the nights are still long. Well, I want to impose Jesus into that scenario and show you how he brings the joy. He brings the joy. You talk about the excess. Jesus actually is an excess kind of guy. I'm not talking about gluttony. You don't Be careful. Don't jump too far ahead in the sermon. But, but when Jesus comes, he talks about a celebration. And a celebration of something that is so big, it's so glorious, that there's not a level of excess that you do that is overmatching what you're celebrating. When the prodigal son comes home, they kill a fatted calf. When Jesus goes about in his ministry preaching, he's preaching and he's doing excess. He, he goes to a wedding and they run out of wine. And what do they do? Well, Mary, Jesus' mother, says, well, you should talk to Jesus. Lots of questions about what, you know, led her to say, like, yeah, just do a miracle. What was his life like up to that point? I don't know. But she says, talk to Jesus. He'll figure it out. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come. And they go, okay, but he does it anyway. These massive stone jars that were used to hold water for cleansing. Read the Old Testament. Jews were supposed to be washing their hands all the time. They had these huge jars of water. And Jesus turns all of it into wine. He doesn't just fix the problem. He turns the water for cleansing into wine, blood. There's, there's, there's levels here. All of this is one faith. Don't try to bifurcate it into like severe and not. It's all one thing. But, but see, the end goal of it, the end moment, we go through the cross, but we come to the crown. We come to the celebration where the, the water has become not just wine, but good wine. And not just some wine, but massive stone jars filled with the good wine. When they come to hear Jesus teach and they're out of food and they're out of time, Jesus says, you feed them. And the disciples are like, what? There's no way to feed all of these people. And Jesus says, what do you got? They bring forward a, you know, a bag from somebody's sandwich and, and, and lunch for the day. And he starts, he gives thanks, and he starts breaking this up and handing it out. And all of a sudden, there's food. And it's not just like enough food. 
that would be something you might expect. You might expect him to hand out enough food for everybody to eat a sensible amount and then be on their way home. No. Everybody eats their fill, is what it says. And there are baskets of bread left over. The same word that was used to describe the basket that they'd used to get Paul out of a building. So these are people-sized baskets filled with just the leftovers of the bread after everybody was filled. Why? 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 What's the pattern? The pattern is showing you that this God wants to bring into your life a blessing that is filled and overflowing. You can press it down. You can shake it up. And it's still filled to overflowing because that's his love for you. That's the kind of thing that you should be able to celebrate with that level of excess because it doesn't matter how much food breaks your table with weight. You are still not matching the goodness of the thing that you're trying to celebrate. That's his grace towards you. The excess, don't worry about it. The absence of love. Listen, the love that Jesus has come to bring into your life is so dynamic, so powerful, so steadfast that you become like those things I'm just describing, filled and then overflowing. The idea of the gospel is not that you would look around and have maybe more perceptive critiques for all these people around you so that they can serve you better. The idea of the gospel is that God would so fill you with love that you would overflow and cook an extra 350 meals to go flying out the door to people that will never speak to you again. Because I'm full. I'm giving out of the excess. He's made these things this way. Jesus has walked into your celebration and exploded it with all of this joy. He's not too severe. (laughs) He's not. He's not too severe. He is a God who has come to bring a love and a love that's unending. You have this depression because the Thanksgiving is going to be over. And then it's Christmas and that's great. And New Year's happens so fast you don't realize it. And then, gosh, we wait on Thanksgiving. uh, Valentine's Day, right? Like you're just in depression mode because it just ends. But Jesus doesn't just end. The relationships that he describes, the celebrations that he describes, the celebration that I said, I talked about the fatty calf, this son, there's a parable about a son that goes away and he lives this crazy life and he just is an awful thing to his father. And yet when everything runs out and he comes back home, he comes back penniless to his dad and tries to repent. The dad meets him and he grabs him and he brings him in and then he throws a feast. But what is the feast? It's not a one-time feast so that that son is filled and then they can send him back on. That would be grace. But no, the feast is because the son has returned. The feast is because the relationship is restored. The feast is the beginning of all the feasts that are going to keep happening because they're back. The feasts that we see in many of Jesus' parables are feasts that revolve around weddings. What is a wedding feast? A wedding feast is phenomenal. It's so wonderful. It's so exciting. But it also is a beginning. It's the beginning of the marriage. It's the beginning of the relationship, the relationship that's going to go on. He uses these analogies because he has come to bring you to himself. He has come to begin a relationship that doesn't end. These celebration moments are always supposed to fill you with hope for the time when. It just continues. The Lord has played the flute for you. Do you dance? Oh, Christianity is too severe. No, it's not. It's not. Well, then what happens? 
apparently, this generation, you lay out all the joy that's there, and they go, yeah, well, yeah, and that's why Christianity is wrong, because it's way too indulgent. Do you see what we did? It's way too severe. Jesus, well, yeah, because it's way too indulgent. What? No. Christianity, and I just said everything I just said, is not too indulgent. Uh, Pie in the sky. Have you ever heard that? The idea that Christianity is a pie-in-the-sky religion. It's a religion that fools people into hoping for something that will be one day. And it's blinded all these people to the harsh realities of the world around us. That these people, they they don't see what's really going on. They're way too indulgent. And honestly, I had a conversation with my daughter this week. We were thinking about pecan pie because we were going to have a pecan pie on Thanksgiving. And for both of us, that's like the highlight of the week, year. We love pecan pie. And we're talking about it. And I just had this thought of like, can you imagine how good pies must be in heaven? And we were talking about it. And we're like two minutes in when I realized like I am literally talking about a pie in the sky version of Christianity to my children. But yeah, they're going to have pies indulgent. Okay, but you say, no, no, Christianity is way too... They're not severe. They don't actually see the world as it is with all the wickedness that's there. And for a moment, I can sympathize with that argument. I had a nightmare recently and woke up from it. And my wife could, you know, try to slow me down and settle me back down and tell me, hey, that's not real. You're in bed. Everything's fine. But you have this idea of like, okay, I had this horrible situation that happened in my dream. But for what percentage of the world is it not a nightmare, but a reality? This does happen to somebody's daughter. This does happen to whole groups of people. This perpetuates. It is, it is a dark world. I think sometimes we can think Christianity doesn't see the world as it really is. But to that, I would just remind you again about the God who has preached vengeance. It says in Psalm 10, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted and you strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Revelation talks about Christ's return again as a white rider on a horse in a white robe dipped in blood with a sword. Christianity is not too indulgent. This Christ comes and brings judgment. I mean, you can describe John the Baptist as the repentance preacher, but Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else. Yeah. So is it too severe? Is it too indulgent? How is it both? Uh, It starts to look like Chesterton. He he said, it looks not so much as if Christianity was bad enough to include any vice, but rather as if any stick was good enough to beat Christianity with. Yeah, yeah. Do you see that that's kind of what's starting to happen a little bit? It's too severe because, no, it's too indulgent. Oh, no, okay, counterpoint. Yeah, well, it's too severe. Okay, there starts to be a point where you wonder, like, what are you really upset about with this? See, I went to Philosophy 101 freshman year of college, and nobody expects to learn anything in Philosophy 101 freshman year of college, right? But the guy said something incredibly perceptive. He said, I I think we have to be careful here because often our mind will justify what our heart wants to be true. 
As we're arguing, we're going to try and achieve a rational statement because often your mind will strive to justify what your heart wants to be true. I think he's right about that. I think as you and I think about Jesus and think about the people that we want to speak to and the people who are going to reject, if they have a consistent reason that they reject Jesus, awesome. Awesome. That's a target we can actually talk about. We can actually dig in and we can look at together. What are the answers that are there biblically, that are there historically for the objection that they have to Christianity? That's fantastic. But often, if you do then speak to somebody about that, all of a sudden the argument shifts and now they've got a whole new thing that they're going to argue about. What's going on there? You, maybe you start being obedient, you start getting excited about, you start finding blessing in your life in Christianity, and then as God gives you blessing, you start finding fault. Maybe you're in a, in a, um, a season of discipline. It seems like the Lord is really trying to work on something in your life, and instead of reacting to that, eventually you start to object to that. Uh, or what's going on with the human heart? What is it with this generation? We need to see the reality of who Jesus is. We, we need to understand that we're not being objective. If we can see that, then we can start to weight ourselves against it. If we can see that, then we can start responding to the grace that God's given. Jesus continues, and he says something that I think a lot of us react to in a little bit of fear and a little bit of um, rejection because we see it as maybe too severe, but listen to what he's actually saying. It says in verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they didn't repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! Because if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. What's he saying? Now, you don't know who Tyre and Sidon are, but they were a seafaring people that were north of Israel, and they were uh, idol worshipers. And they, in their seafaring, brought that idolatry all over the Mediterranean and the land surrounding And it was an idolatry that led to the sacrifice of their children. It was an idolatry that led away, obviously, from the worship of the one true God. And yet, Jesus is saying, if if they had seen what you saw, Chorazin, Bethsaida, they would have repented. And there's all kinds of questions that you might have. I'd love to talk to them. I'm already over time. but, But see what he's saying. What he's implying is, if they would have repented, God would have forgiven them. He goes on, he starts talking about Sodom. Sodom becomes a paradigm for wickedness in the Old Testament because of some of the sexual practices and the violence practices. But Jesus is saying that if Sodom would have repented, they would have been forgiven. Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah goes to bring the gospel to Nineveh because they were wicked people. The Assyrians were doing all kinds of awful, awful, awful stuff. And yet, when they repented, they received from God forgiveness, welcome, reception, the hug, the feast. You and I, when we're talking about Christianity, when you're presenting it to the world, when you're thinking about it yourself, you have to understand what we're really describing. What we're really describing is a love 
and a forgiveness, a very obvious and clear right and wrong. This is a God who is God, and yet it is a God who forgives. It says it in Isaiah so beautifully. Isaiah 12 is only six verses. If you want to try and memorize a whole chapter of Scripture, it's only six verses, and it's all just absolute beauty. It says in verse 1, in a prayer, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you are angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I don't know. God turns away from his anger towards us that he might comfort us. You expect the father to send the prodigal son as far away as he can go. But instead, what does he do? He turns from his anger and comforts his son. You expect God to rain fire on Sodom and Gomorrah and on Tyre and Sidon and on Bethsaida and Chorazin. But what happens when they repent? He turns away from his anger and he comforts them in his love. You and I have sinned against a holy God. But today, if you'll repent, if you'll admit that he's God and come to him for that forgiveness, can't earn it, can't impress him with some sort of righteousness, there's no cutting of deals, you put dust and ashes on your head and you stand before him as one who needs forgiveness, doesn't matter what you've done, he'll forgive you. He'll love you. He'll show you the severity of his justice and the absolute wonder of His grace and His mercy. Fullness, grace upon grace. you got to see this. you got to understand it. you got to see it in yourself so that you might preach it to this world. And yeah, we want to see the whole city come to Christ, but it's a person-by-person thing. What we're going to do now is look at this grace in the life of one person. We're going to see a testimony and then a baptism of a young man who has received this gospel I'm going to pray and then watch as we do a small testimony and then actually see this visual representation of being buried with Christ in baptism and then raised, because of His grace, raised, forgiven to walk in new life. Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray that we would receive this gospel, that we would see it as it is, that we would understand what Christ says about our hearts, that we would react in thankfulness, Lord. A thankfulness that is not tongue-in-cheek, a thankfulness that is not sort of a glib checking of a box because it's Thanksgiving, but a thankfulness that actually sees the forgiveness that we actually need because of our real sin before a real holy God, and a thankfulness that actually sees the forgiveness that leads not just to a wiping of a slate, not just to owing zero dollars, but, but leads to adoption, but leads to marriage that leads to being yours and with you forever. Lord, let us see and understand that we might preach it rightly and that many might hear and believe. We pray that all this would happen, that your name would be glorified. In your holy name we pray. Amen.